This is God's word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Let's pray. Father, it says in the scriptures that uh, uh, the flower fades and the grass withers, but your word will stand forever, Lord, and reminds us the importance of, of reading your word, of studying your word, meditating on it, and the constancy and faithfulness of it, Father. So, Father, I pray that as we look at it this morning, that uh, you would use it to shape our hearts and shape our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Last week, if you were uh, with us, I opened up the sermon by uh, talking about uh, what I and others have called uh, smorgasbord theology or cafeteria line theology. And essentially what that means is that many people choose to believe things that they want to believe about God and the things that are less palpable or less savory They're just going to pass by. They're not going to consider it. They're not going to choose to believe in those sorts of things. Well, I think people also treat the Bible in a very similar way. They come to stories that they like and stories that they appreciate, and they pass by those that are harder to understand or stories they don't like or books that are difficult to really work through. And to be honest, that's why the book of Judges, which we just read from, is very rarely read. It's very uh, rarely considered, and it's even more rare to hear a sermon preached about the book of Judges. The book of Judges is actually one of the, the darkest and hardest books to read in all of the Bible. Yet we've chosen over uh, this Lenten season, the next couple weeks of Lent, to look at different stories in the book of Judges. And I've been thinking about this uh, series for a while, for months now, and I thought about what a great idea it was to do a sermon series in the book of Judges. And then as I kind of got my hands dirty in the passages this week, I began to have thoughts of regret. What are we doing looking at uh, the book of Judges? What am I doing here? Uh, but despite all the kind of uh, the negative thoughts that crept into my mind, at the same time I was encouraged 
Because what I believe is, is that the message of the gospel often shines brightest in the darkest of places. And we see that in this book. A lot of people date the book of Judges uh, from around uh, 1200 uh, to 1000 BC. It covers about a a 200-year period, and it follows God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, through a transition time in their history. They had just been uh, released from the Exodus. They had arrived in Canaan, which was called uh, the Promised Land. They began to conquer uh, the Promised Land and began to, to rule the Promised Land. But once they had done that, they set up what uh, many have called a kind of a tribal confederacy. It was a bunch of tribes, 12 tribes, that were kind of governing themselves, but yet loosely attached to one another through their common faith, through their common religion. And there was no king in the land. That's the thing that made them unique amongst all the other nations. They had no king. And the phrase that is commonly repeated throughout all the book of Judges, you see it at least four or five times all throughout the book, and it says this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You may be wondering, why would we choose to look at such a dark, dark book in the Bible? Why would we choose to look at these kind of ancient stories about an ancient people? And what sort of difference does these ancient stories make in my life as I live my life and my faith out each day? Well, I thought about this week, that this week, and I, and I read what one commentator wrote about the book of Judges. He said, the book of Judges talks about tension and striving between rival groups, especially in the Middle East. It talks about disputes over land and territory. It talks about the uncertainty of uh, roles of men and women. It talks about power-hungry political leaders, about child abuse, about spouse abuse, about senseless and excessive violence. It talks about male political leaders who chase after women. It talks about excessive individualism and moral confusion and social chaos. And as I read that list, I thought, that's kind of an apt description of the world that you and I live in as well. It is a world where everyone tends to choose what is right in their own eyes. So I took comfort in the thought that maybe Judges has more to say about our lives today than we initially think. To understand this book, you have to understand kind of four elements. And these are four elements that create a cycle that just keeps repeating all throughout the book. And what's interesting about these four elements is you see them repeated all throughout the book, but they also very accurately help us understand what the actual message of the gospel really talks about as well. You saw the the elements in the passage that that Mark just read from Judges chapter 2. But you can also see the elements in a passage that we're going to put up now. It's a passage that tells about the story of Othniel, one of the judges. And you read about it in Judges 3 verses 7 to 11. And the first cycle or the first element that you see in the book of Judges is the concept of sin and what the nature of sin really does. Look at verse 7. 
It says, And the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their Lord, the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, if you've, if you've been with us or if you've read through the Bible at all, you'll know that just uh, one or two generations before the book of Judges, God's people were given these things called the Ten Commandments. Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, he met with God on the, mount, on the mountain, and he received in tablet form Ten Commandments that instructed the people as to how they were supposed to live their lives. And the first rule, the very first one, which may be arguably the most important one, says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we're going to talk about uh, this more in other weeks and kind of what that means. But ancient society was uh, what often has called, is called a pluralistic society, which meant that every nation had their own specific gods and goddesses that they would worship. So when God gave this command to Israel, it was very unique because he said, I don't want you to worship any other gods. I want you to worship me exclusively. Worship me alone. You see, he knew that they would be tempted because all their friends were doing it and all the other nations were doing it, that they would be tempted to worship these other gods. So instead, what he said is that he desired a singular devotion from his people to worship him alone. But as you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll notice very quickly that God's people chose not to listen. They chose to be ensnared by the gods of all the other nations. And uh, what this passage talks about is it even talks about it in very graphic terms. It says that they actually hoard after all the other gods of the other nations. And by using this term, what essentially God is saying is that when people worship other gods, they are not just breaking the first commandment, but they are, they are committing a spiritual adultery. And what the scriptures tell us is that this is the very nature of sin. It's not just violating a set of laws that God has for us, but it's violating a relationship, a very intimate relationship that we have with him. I think the idea of, of sin has really come under attack culturally. We don't talk about sin a whole lot, even within kind of church circles or Christian circles. And when we do think about sin, we think of it in terms of really big sins, right? Of, of people murdering one another or committing felonies or uh, bank or insurance fraud or something big like that is what we think of. And we tend to not think of the little things. We tend to think of extremes. And in the process, we miss out on the ways that you and I violate God's law each day. I was reminded this, uh, of this very powerfully just a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm taking a, a, a discipleship and kind of mentoring program uh, that's designed for, for pastors and people that are in ministry. And uh, each week you have to do assignments and you meet with people and you talk with them about it. And a couple weeks ago, uh, they gave us an assignment. It was called uh, the tongue assignment, okay? And here's what the assignment was that we had to accomplish. The assignment was for one week, 
For one entire week, I had to abstain from gossiping, complaining, criticizing, blame-shifting, defending myself, boasting, and deceiving others. I couldn't do any of that for one entire week. And all of these practices are considered to be sinful in the scriptures. So I went home and told my wife that that was the assignment for that week. And she looked at me and she said, you might as well just not talk for an entire week. And she was absolutely right because this was an incredibly hard exercise to practice. I failed multiple times every single day. Friends, we lose touch with just how much we sin and violate God's law every single day. We lose touch of the carnage that it makes in our own lives and in other people's lives and in our relationships. We lose touch concerning the misery that sin often casts us into. So what God does is he often has to open our eyes to it. He needs to send us some sort of kind of wake-up call in our lives that opens our eyes to just how much we fall short of his design for our lives. And that brings us to the second element in the cycle of Judges that we see. Look at verse 8. It says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. You see, sin in its essence is self-assertion. It is our attempt to be independent of God. It's our desire to do what we want to do. We don't want to have to serve and obey God. Instead, we want to be independent. That's the very nature of what sin is. So often what God just simply does is he gives us the very thing that we want. And then we have to come to terms with the carnage and the consequences of those disordered desires. God's people wanted to worship and serve the gods of the foreign nations. So he gave them over to the natural consequences of what serving those other gods would look like. And in this story, God's people are conquered by a foreign king. His name is Cushan Rishathaim. That is seminary dollars well spent learning how to pronounce those Hebrew uh, words. This, of course, was not uh, his literal name. It's actually a humorous name that we miss in the translation because his name in this passage is is Cushion of Double Wickedness. So what God is saying is, is, is that he has allowed Cushion, this wicked, awful, doubly wicked king, to conquer and oppress God's people, and they become enslaved to this foreign king for upwards of eight years. Now, if you read the scriptures, you'll discover this. You'll see that whenever you see the concept of sin, it is always quickly related to the idea of slavery. In fact, the scriptures say that when we become ensnared in sin, when we become uh, caught in sin, we become enslaved to it. It becomes our master. So that means that we desire independence from God But independence from God naturally means slavery to sin. 
And this, of course, had a a very literal meaning to God's people in the book of Judges, but it has a spiritual meaning to you and I, because sin leads to slavery, and slavery always leads to misery. And in that miserable state is where this third element comes in in the book of Judges, and we see it in our passage. It's the element of supplication or of crying out to God for help. Look at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, I don't know about you. Some people are much better at this than I am, but I am the type of person that just absolutely does not like to ask for help. I like to feel like I can do things on my own and that I'm capable. I just don't like to ask for help. And I can remember one uh, time in uh, college where this kind of got me in a little bit of trouble. I can remember it was right after, it was the summer after uh, my freshman year in college, and I was uh, out on a date with some girl. And we were driving back from uh, the date. I say some girl because it wasn't my wife, right? It was just some girl. Uh, we were out on a date with just some girl. And, uh, and uh, it was the summertime and we were driving back and we got a flat tire uh, on, on the car. And uh, it was late at night and the flat tire happened on the beltway. It happened on uh, 695. And uh, uh, I got out of the car and quietly I was feeling somewhat insecure about my own ability to change a flat tire. I'd just gotten my license two or three years ago, didn't have a whole lot of experience changing flat tires, but I, of course, acted much more confident than I really felt on the inside. So I get out of the car, I bring out the tire iron, and I start working on the tire. I get all the nuts that are off the tire. I'm feeling good about myself at this point. And then I come to one final nut, and I get the tire iron on there, and I start yanking it, it won't budge. It will not budge. So I, I put more elbow grease into it. I'm, I'm literally getting greasy. I'm sweating all over the place. I'm probably cursing at this tire iron. But for the life of me, I could not get this one last nut off the tire. So I had to do the very thing I didn't want to do. I had to walk to the very next exit with this girl, walk up the exit, get on a payphone, and call my dad and ask for help. The very thing that I didn't want to do. Come to find out the next day when we went back to the car, I noticed in the light of the day that the nut that I was trying to move was a locking nut. That you needed a very special tool to be able to get off. But I couldn't see it because I was in the dark. Friends, isn't this the very thing that we do with life day in and day out? We want to be independent. We want to figure things out on our own. We don't want to ask for help. We'd rather struggle in the dark on a task that is literally impossible for us to accomplish. And sometimes in those moments, the most gracious thing that God can do is to bring us to our end. To bring us to the place where we despair of our own abilities and we cry out to God for help. And in our story, it took God's people eight years of misery and servitude at the hand of a wicked king before they would finally cry out to God for help. But when they did, when they did, we see the fourth element of that cycle. We see the element of salvation. 
Look at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rithathaim. I missed it there. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. In some ways, the title Judges can be somewhat misleading for us as we look at this book. Because when we see uh, the title Judge, we think only of kind of someone who sits on a bench and uh, proclaims kind of legal decisions. And there is some sort of evidence that the judges in the, in the book had a legal function, but they had a function much bigger and much deeper than simply defending laws. At the end, they were, they were mili- military leaders much more than they were legal representatives. They were deliverers who would restore shalom or peace to God's people. They would be empowered by God. Literally, it says in many, of the, many parts of the book that the Spirit of God would rush upon them and give them the literal power to rescue the people from their enslavement and their misery. In this story, Othniel went out to battle against Cushion of double wickedness, and he defeated him. And by doing so, he brought peace and rest for God's people. But as you'll see, and we'll see this next week, once that deliverer, once that rescuer died, the people would go back to their own ways. The cycle of judges would reset. So we see in this book the cycle of sin, of servitude, of supplication, and salvation. And you see it repeated all over and over and over again. So back to our initial question. Why study this book? Why look at these stories? Why especially should we reflect on this book and this vicious cycle that happens over and over again during this Lenten season? And I think the answer is because each cycle is really a story or a small picture of the very message of the gospel itself. The scriptures tell us that ever since Adam and Eve, sin has characterized the world that we live in. Both big sins and little sins are an expression of our rebellion against a holy God. It is our attempt to be able to define what is right and wrong in our own eyes. It's our attempt to live lives independent of God and his plan, his design, and his will. And we think that it makes us free, but in the end, sin only enslaves us. It makes us stuck in patterns and habits that we can't control. It gives us the illusion of freedom all the while enslaving us and locking us into a misery that we are often even blind to. But the gospel tells us that one of God's greatest mercies is opening our eyes to our sin. Even as painful as that is. 
It's opening our eyes to our guilt and misery that we live in apart from Him. It's bringing us to the point where we come to our very end, where we realize that we can't get that nut off as much as we try. We cannot fix ourselves in the dark. And so we cry out to God to save us. We cry out to Him for Him to fix our souls. And when we do, He sends us a deliverer. Because the gospel story tells us that the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate rescuer comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He was God who took on flesh. He entered into the muck and mire of a sinful world. He lived a perfect life and died an unjust death. He was risen on the third day. He did all of this to rescue us from the enslavement of our sin. He did it all to be our Savior and to be our salvation. Friends, if, if you don't know him as your savior, if you don't know him as your deliverer, then come to terms with the carnage of sin in your own life. Come to terms with the fact that it enslaves you. It is your master. It controls you. Stop trying to, to make life work on your own terms. Stop trying to fix yourself by building your own resume before God and instead stop and cry out to him for the rescue of your soul. But friends, even if you, don't, if you, even if you do know him, isn't this the easiest thing to forget. That really was Israel's problem. They kept forgetting the truth of God. And just like God's people in the Old Testament, you and I day in and day out forget about the gospel. So this Lenten season, really the, the season of all of our Christian life is to do this, to remember the good news of the gospel, to wake up each morning, to approach every situation in our lives, crying out to him for help and trusting in our one and true and only deliverer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.